Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are today's top stories. 13 women and children hostages slated for release today. We look at the logistics of the deal. As the temporary pause begins, attacks from Hezbollah continue on Israel's northern front, and rockets and tunnels are discovered in a Gaza refugee camp. A cluster of pneumonia cases echoing the 2019 pandemic, a troubling situation now unfolding inside China, tied to sick children and censorship. A serious allegation against New York City Mayor Eric Adams. A woman says Adams sexually assaulted her 30 years ago. As we enter the holiday shopping season, we expect to see a rise in consumers buying and paying, buying now and paying later. We get into the details with the host of Entity Business. A protest in New York gets sticky after demonstrators break through barriers and hijack the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. In an annual tradition, Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade bringing together friends and family. Jason Perry in Manhattan with the highlights and what parade goers loved most. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone. Today is Friday, November 24th. Yes, a big day in the Middle East. This deal certainly brings hope to the families whose loved ones were taken hostage by terrorists. Yes, and of course some relief uh, to the Gazans, hopefully. Yes. Well, our top news, the war in Gaza, as mentioned, and the hostage deal between Israel and Hamas. 13 Israeli women and children will be released at 4 p.m. local time. That's if the temporary ceasefire started at 7 a.m. this morning holds. So far, there's been no reported bombings, artillery strikes, or rocket attacks. Qatari mediators say the hostages will first be sent to Egypt, then back to Israel to reunite with their families. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the logistics. Smoke lingered over northern Gaza Friday morning as Israeli tanks and armored vehicles drove away in a column and the brief truce with Hamas began. It's the first pause in fighting in the 48-day-old war, meant to get aid to civilians in Gaza and facilitate the release of 240-some hostages being held by Hamas after being kidnapped in the October 7th terrorist attacks. At least 50 women and children hostages will be freed during the four-day pause. That's in exchange for at least 150 Palestinian prisoners, fuel and aid trucks into Gaza, and a halt to aerial surveillance for six hours a day. The deal includes the option to extend the pause by one day for every additional 10 hostages released. A spokesperson from Qatar's foreign ministry says women and children hostages from the same families will be grouped together. Israel says it has now received the first list of hostages to be set free and is in contact with all families. The first Israeli faces that they will see will be the faces of IDF personnel who will let them know, hopefully, that they are safe and in safe hands and will facilitate almost immediate contact with family. IDF spokesperson Daniel Hagari said the following days will be complicated and cautioned nothing was final until it actually happens. One Israeli official told CNN 39 Palestinian prisoners will be released in the first group. He said they will be sent back to their hometowns and villages in the West Bank, but only after the hostages in Gaza are back in Israeli hands. A Palestinian official says the group is made up of 24 women and 15 teenage males. Egypt has said 34,000 gallons of diesel, four trucks of gas, and 200 trucks of aid will be delivered daily into Gaza when the pause starts. 
Israel's military says its troops would stay behind a ceasefire line inside Gaza, but didn't state the location. Hamas confirmed through its channels that it would cease all hostilities over the four days, and called for an escalation on all fronts once it ends. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. For some analysis on the hostage release, we're bringing in Colonel Richard Kemp, a retired British Army commander. Colonel Kemp, thank you for making the time to speak with us today. Please start by giving us your assessment of how the deal has played out so far. I think this has been one of the most difficult decisions to be taken during this conflict by the Israelis. Um, because, of course, they, after 7th of October, they were determined to annihilate Hamas. And any pause in military operations obviously sets that back. But, on the other hand, they do also have enormous pressure from the civilian population in Israel to uh, facilitate the release of as many hostages as possible. And on top of that, a great deal of pressure from the United States to do so, particularly uh, trying to secure American citizens who are held hostage. So it's a, it's a, it's a tough decision. It has many uh, downsides, including obviously giving Hamas an advantage, giving Hamas breathing space to, uh, to, to regroup and reorganize and prepare for their own attacks. And, and that's why I think Hamas went for this deal. They get nothing out of it apart from breathing space. The, the release of the Palestinian prisoners means nothing to Hamas. So that's not, not a benefit for them, but, but the benefit is giving them breathing space. On the other hand, for Israel, um, as I mentioned, it, it, it slows momentum, but also I think it undermines to an extent confidence from the Arab world who want to see a strong Israel and an Israel defeating Hamas. Yes, Israel has faced pressure for this deal, for good reason, of course, reuniting their families. Now, do you expect that we will see the release of these hostages in two hours? It appears to be the case, unless obviously in this sort of situation, there are very often unexpected problems uh, that could arise um, and, and, and anything could happen, really. Uh, for example, Hamas could break the ceasefire between now and when the hostages are due to be released. Um, and that might be their decision, their intention to, to add psychological pressure to this situation, or it might simply be they can't control all of the terrorists that are operating in the Gaza Strip. Let's not forget that there are, um, there are numerous groups that operate, not all under the direct control of, of Hamas. And so there could be, yeah, there could well be hiccups on the, on the Hamas side. A breach of a ceasefire is one possibility, but are there any other ways that there could be complications to this agreement? I don't, I don't see any at the moment. I think, uh, you, you know, it's, it's been delayed by a day due to ironing out the other issues, the logistic issues affecting this. I think, uh, as far as I can see, short of a breach of the ceasefire, uh, which, which might or might not end, end the ceasefire, the Israeli Defense Force will have to judge how serious that breach is. Other than that, I think it's probably likely to go ahead. So we've seen no artillery or rocket strikes. Have things been going according to plan thus far? Yeah, I think there has been at least one um, breach in the ceasefire uh, since the since it came into effect. But but the IDF did not respond to that, and so they obviously judged that it wasn't sufficiently serious. At the same time, we have also seen um, rocket fire from the north, from the Lebanon, from Hezbollah up in Lebanon, which who are not party to this ceasefire, and therefore that doesn't really affect it. Otherwise, I think it's uh, it's progressed as smoothly as can be expected. Colonel Kemp, do you expect Hamas to release more hostages after this four-day truce in order to get an extended pause in the fighting? 
I think it's possible, and you know, the prime minister here in Israel has has I think suggested that the the ceasefire could be extended by maybe up to a total of nine days um, if further hostages are released. And I think the intention may be to release another ten hostages per day over that period, which would potentially see um, around a hundred of the 240 hostages being released. Now, of course, that may be the total number that are still alive. Um, we don't know. We don't know how many of the 240 remain alive, but I think potentially we could see it extended. And I think also there is the likelihood that Hamas will try and push the ceasefire as far as they can by maybe delaying uh, some of the later releases if, if they do indeed occur. Uh, because what they need above all, they need um, the, a cessation so that they can regroup, reorganize, and in some cases, so that their terrorist leaders particularly can escape out of Gaza to live and fight another day. Well, we will definitely be keeping a close eye on this as many lives are on the line. I really appreciate your analysis. Retired British Army Commander Colonel Richard Kemp. Thank you. Fighting intensified yesterday ahead of the truce in battles around Jabalia refugee camp north of Gaza City. Israel says its fighter jets hit more than 300 targets and took out a senior Hamas naval commander in the hours leading up to the pause. The terrorist group Hezbollah launched a series of attacks on Israel yesterday. Israel says it repeatedly warned the state that it's in a very dangerous situation due to Hezbollah attacks on civilians. Here's IDF spokesperson Jonathan Conriquez. And we will continue to defend against Hezbollah aggression. And let's hope that for once, they do what's right for the civilians in Lebanon and think about the future of Lebanon instead of escalating the situation while jeopardizing everything that is left in Lebanon. Oh, we have. Israel stated its posture along Lebanon's border is defensive and that it's been hitting back at Hezbollah military infrastructure. The IDF says its fighter jets struck rocket launch pads yesterday, recently used to target Israel along with other sites used for military operations. Israel's military released videos yesterday of weapons, tunnel shafts, and missiles. It says were found in Gaza's Jabalia area. The footage shows a tunnel shaft in a mosque and various missiles in the urban area. Here, next to residential houses, we found all these missiles, long and medium-range missiles which are aimed from the civilian area towards the state of Israel. We entered the area and found missiles next to the mosque, very, very large missiles. This made it clear that terrorist activity was taking place inside the mosques and inside the urban area. Mm. The IDF says launchers were found buried in surrounding orchards and that it found weapons in nearby schools and residences. Israel says its airstrikes yesterday in the north of Gaza hit terrorist command centers, tunnels, weapons, manufacturing sites and anti-tank missile launch posts. The question is, is there anything Hamas won't use to shield their weapons? We've seen them mm. store them near mosques, now refugee camps, and prior to this, other yeah, refugee Yeah, camps. it must be, um, the IDF must be happy to be able to find all these evidences and show to people. And I think a couple days ago, they, um, they, were, they, they found a stroller or a baby's bed, and they had um, weaponry stored below it inside the stroller. So it was, uh, and reportedly, it was their, their family's baby. <laughs> So, you know, you never know. Countless war crimes being committed by the terrorists. Yeah, and at the same time, you know, it, it's, it's incredible because a lot of people from outside Israel, they flew back when the war started. They hopped on, 
hopped on uh, airplanes, they flew back into the country, leaving their families behind, a lot of them, right? Yeah. So, and I think now, especially during the holidays, um, we want to, if you think about that, it can be a lonely time of year. Yeah, and a volunteer organization is helping Israel defense soldiers from abroad have a family to celebrate with. Take a look. Okay, okay so, we so we have mashed potatoes, green beans. For many Israeli Americans gathering to give thanks, this holiday is a sad one. There are empty seats at some Thanksgiving tables, those killed by Hamas on October 7th, and the more than 200 people still being held hostage in Gaza. This day is especially tough for what the Israelis call lone soldiers, men and women like Tali Rochberg, who are from abroad and serve in the Israel Defense Forces here without their families. We act as a little family for them. Tali volunteers at the Lone Soldier Center, one organization helping bring people together during this very difficult time. She and fellow volunteer Anat Ben-Dror's families are not among those killed or captured, but they're working to support others in a country reeling from the October 7th Hamas attack. Usually we're doing very big events on Thanksgiving to the Lone Soldiers, but in this time we thought what's the right way to celebrate in these not happy times here in Israel. We decided to celebrate it for the ones who can come, to thank them for what they are doing, and to say thanks that we are alive, and to try and get some strength from one another. Um, so it is, it's like a um, bittersweet Thanksgiving, I have to say. Despite everything, the people here are taking some comfort in this moment of unity. We don't have our families here, and we want to spend Thanksgiving with people that we love and people that we feel comfortable with. And so we have this event for them so that we can all come together and still celebrate and have that joy. We're going to have our turkey and uh, the yams with marshmallows on top, hopefully. And uh, we're going to have our dinner here with the lone soldiers who, who can arrive and join us. So that's what we're trying to achieve here is bring everyone together. Doesn't matter if you're American. For Ornella Fuchs, today is about remembering the loved ones lost. We light a candle in memory of our soldiers who died in, on the Sabbath on the 7th October. Hanging over this dinner table and the country is the absence of those who are being held hostage. The feeling that while we're all together, we're not fully whole. There's still uh, a part of our country, of our people that are not with us tonight. We want everyone back home, able to be with their families. We want kids back home with their parents. But also at the table, gratitude for the glimmer of hope as families wait for the release of the hostages. Well, I think part of this uh, dinner today will be to think about the one we lost, to pray that we will get back soon, the ones that are still in life and in Gaza. And coming up, Hillary Clinton, Gavin Newsom. We have the results of a new poll on who should replace President Biden where he to sit out in 2024. Multiple lawmakers from both major parties have announced they won't seek re-election. Find out why they decided not to run for another term. A serious allegation against New York City Mayor Eric Adams. A woman says Adams sexually assaulted her 30 years ago.
Good to have you back. Is a third time the charm for Hillary Clinton? A recent poll names the former first lady as a top choice to replace President Biden were he to drop out of the 2024 election. Most of the Harwood Harris, Harris poll respondents said they have doubts about Biden's mental fitness to serve as commander in chief, with the majority believing he is getting worse rather than improving. The top pick to replace Biden was Vice President Kamala Harris with 24 percent, while Clinton was second at 13 percent. Clinton has recently drawn attention for suggesting a formal deprogramming of Trump supporters, sparking controversy over her remarks. Rounding out the top five were Senator Bernie Sanders at 10 percent and California Governor Gavin Newsom and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, both with 7 percent each. Several lawmakers from the GOP and Democratic parties will not be running for re-election in 2024. More than two dozen have announced that this will be their last term. Most of them will be retiring, while a few are vying for other posts besides the House and Senate. Entities Cost Temenes tells us more. In total, 26 lawmakers have announced that this will be their last term. 19 are members of the House of Representatives while the remaining seven are senators. Republican Congressman Bill Johnson from Ohio will not seek an eighth term in Congress and has accepted an offer to lead Youngstown State University. Michigan Democrat Dan Kildee will not seek re-election once his term ends in January 2025. Kildee made his decision based on health reasons and to spend more time with family. Republican Congresswoman Debbie Lesko of Arizona announced she'll be stepping down next year, also to focus on family matters. She added in a post on X that right now Washington, D.C. is broken and it is hard to get anything done. New York Republican George Santos announced he has no intention of seeking re-election. That follows a damning House Ethics Committee report that accused him of stealing money from his campaign's donor contributions. While Colorado Republican Congressman Ken Buck announced his retirement next year, after he criticized GOP members who denied the 2020 election results. In the Senate, seven Democrats and two Republicans won't be running in 2024. Democratic Senator LaFonza Butler took over the role to replace the late Senator Dianne Feinstein in California last month. In an interview with the New York Times, she announced that she will not be running next year. Democrat Joe Manchin announced earlier this month that he will not be vying for re-election. He said he will travel the country to see if there is an interest in a movement to mobilize the middle and bring Americans together. And Utah Republican Mitt Romney told the Washington Post that he would not seek a new term in the Senate, adding that it was now time for a new generation to step up. Cross NTD News. Just a week after the FBI seized his cell phones as part of a corruption probe, New York City Mayor Eric Adams is facing yet another controversy. He's now being accused of sexual assault. A woman who has not been identified filed a document in the New York County Supreme Court Wednesday. It says Eric Adams sexually assaulted her when they both worked for the city of New York in 1993. The filing also accuses the mayor of battery and employment discrimination, retaliation, hostile work environment, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. Besides Adams, the filing also names the Transit Bureau of the NYPD and the NYPD Guardians Association as defendants. Details of the allegation are unclear, as the summons are not made public. 
The plaintiff seeks a trial and $5 million in relief. She filed the summons under the Adult Survivors Act. The New York law, which is set to expire this week, has triggered a flurry of lawsuits against famous men. A City Hall spokesman responded to the allegations. He said Adams denies the allegation, adding, quote, the mayor does not know who this person is. If they ever met, he doesn't recall it. But he would never do anything to physically harm another person and vigorously denies any such claim. This comes as Adams is facing other legal troubles. He's currently the subject of a separate probe by the FBI related to campaign financing. The recent scandals may have further distanced the mayor from fellow Democrats in the White House. Politico is writing today that Adams and President Biden haven't spoken in a year. Adams has become increasingly vocal about the illegal immigration crisis and has openly criticized the Biden administration's policies. The accusation comes ahead of the expiration of a special one-year window for New York State's Adult Survivors Act. The act allows for such lawsuits to be filed in court even if the statutes of limitations have run out. And Governor Kathy Hochul signed the New York Adult Survivors Act into law in May of last year. It allowed those who were 18 years or older at the time of an alleged offense to file a lawsuit against their alleged abusers and the institutions that enabled them. It also set aside the statute of limitations for civil lawsuits. The window began November 24, 2022 and ended yesterday on November 23rd. More than 2,500 lawsuits have been filed under the law. Music artist Sean Diddy Combs has been hit with another lawsuit just as he settles his first. This time, Joy Dickerson Neal claims she was a victim of revenge porn in addition to allegedly being drugged and sexually assaulted by the musician in 1991. The civil suit filed in New York Supreme Court demands a jury trial. A spokesperson for Combs says the, the accusations are not credible and purely a money grab. Last week, Combs settled a legal battle with former girlfriend Cassie Ventura. Ventura says she was raped and subjected to years of repeated physical and other abuse by Combs. And the Iowa Board of Regents voted to cut back on the university's DEI programs. So what does it mean going forward? I spoke to Alex Newman, an award-winning journalist and the president of Liberty Sentinel Media. They're now ordering all the colleges and, and institutions of higher education in the state to really stop mandating this diversity, equity, and inclusion training, to stop mandating the pronouns and things like this. Uh, but what we have seen in numerous other places, from local school districts to companies, that, is that when they attack this DEI, it just comes back under a new name. So this is going to be a long-term battle. Uh, it, it is certainly a progress. They did the same thing uh, here in my state of Florida. But, uh, you know, the, the ideology behind this uh, is still, unfortunately, festering in all of these institutions. So that's an interesting point. Um, but let's let's talk about the practical part of this a little bit more. Can you, you just um, mentioned the trainings, the pronouns, the, that part. But what is, does it mean on a practical level? Well, uh, according to uh, the decision by the Board of Regents, uh, the universities are supposed to take reasonable steps to make sure that nobody on campus, whether that be a student or, uh, or a faculty member, is required to submit to any kind of mandatory DEI training. Uh, and, and these trainings, we, we've seen them in a lot of places. In fact, they're popping up in big businesses. They're popping up at the Department of Defense, the U.S. Department of Defense. And, of course, they, they've been a feature of higher education for many years. What they do is they force these students into these so-called training 
training programs and they teach them that they have white privilege or that if their skin is a little bit darker that they must be oppressed and that uh, the only way to, to solve the oppression is to dismantle the systems of oppression, which very much includes the United States of America and the, the Constitution, etc. Uh, and so under this new ruling, uh, these campuses are no longer going to be allowed to force somebody to participate in these things. Nobody's going to be forced to disclose their pronouns. Uh, it certainly doesn't get rid of this ideology. Again, uh, people will still be using their pronouns. Teachers will still be asking for them. But supposedly, nobody's going to be forced to participate in that, which, uh, you know, for, for the people who don't want to participate, I suppose that's a, a positive step forward. And so for the colleges in question here, how would this change students' experiences? Well, uh, my guess is it's probably not going to change experiences too much for now. Uh, the, the only big difference is they won't be able to mandate it. But uh, they're also supposed to, you know, a, a couple of other things are supposed to be looking at new ways of uh, recruiting and looking for um, diversity in intellectual and philosophical perspectives, which, you know, the, the universities here in Florida are supposed to be doing that. But when you look at academia, it is so undiverse when it comes to political perspectives. I mean, virtually all of them, and they continually show this in surveys and polls, virtually all of them are on the, the left or the far left side of the spectrum. Uh, virtually all of them are affiliated with the Democratic Party or worse, you know, the Communist Party, the Democratic Socialists of America. So this is going to be a long-term project just by passing these measures. It's not going to, I suspect, probably change daily life on these campuses a whole lot. It'll just make it a lot easier for a student to resist and not face necessarily serious consequences. Well, so you, you just mentioned, obviously, it's that it will be a long time battle between those two sides. But what do you think will happen next on this issue since the recommendations were made now? Well, we see the hard left pushing back uh, furiously. Um, the LGBT groups and, and the various uh, race mongering groups are putting out statements calling this extreme. They're calling it, uh, they're saying that these uh, Board of Regents are aligning themselves with extremists, which is, you know, par for the course. Uh, and that, I think, gives you some sense of the reigning ideology on these campuses. So my guess is this battle will continue for a long time. And, and what we've seen historically with these types of movements is that when the name DEI, for example, gets a bad smell, they're just going to repackage it under another terminology. Mm -hmm. So again, this is going to be a long-term battle. Uh, it, it's maybe a, one small step in a positive direction, but uh, this ideology underpinning DEI, which is critical theory, which is, of course, just a repackaged form of Marxism, that's not going anywhere. Mm, I see. Yeah, that's a good, uh, good to keep an eye on those developments. So thank you so much, Alex Newman, for those updates. Thank you for having me. Stay with us. A cluster of pneumonia cases echoing the 2019 pandemic, a troubling situation now unfolding inside China tied to sick children and censorship. Nearly 300 illegal Chinese marijuana grow ops allegedly operating near American homes in a single New England state. A look at why a lawmaker calls it a failure for law enforcement in a moment. I'm Kelly Wright in New York City, and we are NTD News. Good morning and welcome back. A marijuana problem troubling the state of Maine. The Pine Tree State reportedly becoming a ground zero for illegal Chinese grow operations. Hundreds of suspected grow sites estimated to bring in over $4 billion in revenue, but Local law enforcement is having trouble busting them. More on the challenges they face.
Is Maine becoming a new breeding ground for illegal marijuana grows run by Chinese nationals? A Department of Homeland Security memo is shedding light on the issue. It found 270 alleged Chinese illegal marijuana grow operations in the state. DHS estimates the operations could bring in over $4 billion in revenue, and the money could be used for criminal activities or sent back to China. The memo was exclusively obtained by news outlet The Daily Caller. A state representative told the outlet that residences in certain districts are being taken up by illegal grow operations. Several lawmakers wrote a joint letter to the Justice Department asking it to shut down the illegal operations. Some local residents have reported suspected pot grows to authorities, but law enforcement there have yet to bust many of them. Maine legalized marijuana in 2016, and residents that are over 21 years old can grow up to 15 plants for their own use. A local police chief told the Daily Caller that law enforcement isn't clear where the line is. Stanley Bell, the police chief of Clinton, Maine, said he thinks the biggest deterrent to enforcement is that officers don't know where civil enforcement ends and criminal enforcement begins. Some local officials are taking action. Maine's legislature is weighing a bill that aims to crack down on racketeering by foreign organizations in cannabis markets. A state representative said the goal of the bill is to empower law enforcement to go after illegal operations. A widespread outbreak of undiagnosed pneumonia cases is sweeping China, and this time it's mostly affecting kids. Families lined up in the halls of Beijing's Children's Hospital on Thursday. The dire situation is triggering concerns from the World Health Organization. China has been battling a jump in mysterious respiratory illnesses for months. Hospitals across the country are overwhelmed with sick children. A pediatric hospital in Beijing reports seeing over 7,000 patients a day. A video shared online shows another hospital in Beijing at midnight still crowded with parents and children seeking treatment. Our whole family is sick, all four of them, and the hospital is full. My son had a fever of over 39 degrees Celsius and was tested for four pathogens, including mycoplasma pneumonia, influenza A, and COVID-19. There is no official explanation for the exact cause of the illness. Doctors in China have reported this year's flu wave seems worse than years past. They say it's unclear when the pneumonia outbreak started, but that it's unusual for so many children to be affected so quickly. The situation in a northern Chinese province is also getting serious. In an online post, a local health worker revealed that a staggering 9 out of 12 people in her department are grappling with high fevers. Calling it too scary, she describes the situation as almost the same as when COVID-19 restrictions were just lifted. Since Beijing abandoned its zero COVID-19 policy earlier this year, officials have linked China's surge in respiratory illnesses to non-COVID-19 related diseases. Now some residents are questioning whether the regime is using that as a cover-up to hide new waves of the COVID-19 pandemic. It feels like another COVID-19 outbreak, but they're saying it's influenza. I suspect it might be a mutated COVID-19 variant. The data hasn't been shared with the public, and now reporting isn't allowed. 
Everything's being kept under wraps. Medical care is falling behind, and children's hospitals can't take in any more patients. Parents are getting more and more concerned. They, the CCP, won't tell you anything about the virus. I've got some medicine ready. If I feel even a bit unwell, I'll take it right away. China has faced scrutiny in the past about the transparency of its medical reporting, particularly during the early days of the COVID-19 outbreak in Wuhan. A study by the British University of Southampton found 95 percent of COVID-19's global spread could have been reduced if China intervened earlier. Just last week, a top Chinese epidemiologist warned another wave of COVID-19 could hit China soon. According to online posts, at least one child has died of pneumonia during the current wave. Reports have also suggested authorities are blocking related information online. Yeah, that is very serious. And people who have family in China tell us that actually in the city of Dalian in the Northeast, there is a class where two-thirds of the kids are infected. Yeah, highly concerning, really. Yeah, and it's important for them to share the data with the public because they have to discern whether this is a COVID strain or something else. Mm. And of course, we've seen what happened in the initial outbreak of COVID-19 when China destroyed evidence and refused to let the WHO know, know and fair warning. Exactly. I think we should have learned our lesson. So we're heading to break now. Coming up, Black Friday shopping is underway and many Americans are opting to buy now, pay later. We'll sit down with a host of entity business to get the latest. Good to have you back. We have here with us NTD business host Don Ma to talk about buy now, pay later that's being used this shopping season. Yeah, many consumers are expected to use the payment method heavily during the holidays. So Don, why are we seeing so many people using it? Well, I think the biggest reason here is that uh, short-term loans, uh, they come with consumer-friendly interest rates. So that's a big plus for a lot of people. And some plans even have 0% interest, depending on how long you take out the loan for. Um, I mean, this, of course, is appealing to uh, many consumers who are considering potentially multiple gifts uh, this holiday season. You know, some of them have financial considerations, uh, some other debts to pay off potentially student loans that resumed a few months ago. Um, and as well as potentially they have uh, other credit card debt as well. So, I mean, they want other options. And let me just give you some numbers here uh, for some context. Short-term um, installment loans have drove $6.4 billion of online spending in October. And this is up 6% year over year. So, I mean, it's, it's uh, something to be considering, of course. Uh, Adobe estimates one in five Americans uh, could be using buy now, pay later. Uh, so one in five, I mean, that's 20% of all Americans, according to Adobe. Um, and most, most of these short-term loans uh, are not re reported to credit bureaus, the main ones. So that's another plus for, for consumers to uh, feel safe when taking out these loans. Um, I mean, consumers uh, probably would appreciate that this might not affect their credit scores. Uh, but even so, there are some notable downsides to buy now, pay later, and we can get into that if you would like as well. Oh yeah, sure. Tell us about it. Um, so the loans not affecting credit scores, um, I, I mean, this could be a double-edged sword 
because it can lead to loan stacking. And what that is, is that uh, when consumers take on debt with multiple lenders um, and pay in, uh, pay in installment loans often go uh, unreported to bureaus. And there's uh, some level of opacity uh, in this space because uh, the lenders sometimes they don't report to each other either. either. Um, and then consumers can potentially keep taking out these short-term loans and lenders will just keep giving it to them because it's not being reported among these lenders. And this could potentially uh, let consumers trap themselves in debt. So there is some risk potentially. So Don, when I think of buy now, pay later, I think of just put it on a credit card, you pay it off, and that could obviously lead to credit card debt. But is this buy now, pay later different? That's just when you like check the box on Amazon and you say, pay in you know, eight installments over this amount of time. Is that what that is? Yeah, you know, there, it gives you options like uh, pay with a firm or uh, zip is another one. Uh, so you have to go through a, a bit of a minor background check in your credit, in terms of credit score uh, to get some of these loans. And it also, of course, depends on how long you want to pay off uh, this, this amount. You can do four installments, you can do up to a year. I actually tried it myself with my bank. Uh, I, I was buying this thing for around $500. I chose to pay it off uh, over a year every month. And I gotta say the interest on that is much lower. I ended up paying somewhere around only about $50 of interest on that 500. Um, I mean, uh, it seems like it could be an alternative to using credit cards. That's a really interesting insight. And speaking of holiday shopping, now many shoppers are, face financial pressure this year. So how is this year looking for retailers? Sure, uh, uh, consumers are still very cautious. So if holiday sales go up, experts say it will be due to inflation and rising prices. A retail trade group estimates a record 130 million people will shop in store and online in the U.S. on Black Friday this year. Uh, executives say the rise of online shopping has made Black Friday less important as a single day event. Uh, retailers from Macy's to Amazon now launch deals as early as October and offer additional discounts closer to Christmas as Ooh. well. So what to look for? Um, yeah, so what to look for, right? That, that's the important question. Most U.S. stores were closed on Thanksgiving, but are opening to shoppers at 5 or 6 a.m. today. Uh, however, a coalition of activist organizations has called for disruptions and rallies at major commercial centers to demand a ceasefire and the end of aid to Israel. The New York Police Department said on Wednesday there were no credible threats to any individual event or to New York City in general over the weekend. Yeah, you need to be careful out there. And we saw those people break into the Macy's Parade and glue themselves to the street over that cause. So it definitely happens. Don Ma, host of Entity Business, thank you. Thank you. And coming up, we get a close-up look at the fun at Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade yesterday. People from all over the country gathered to celebrate and give thanks. And at the same time, a protest gets sticky after demonstrators break through barriers and hijack the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Stay tuned for that.
I'm David Zhang in Silicon Valley, California, and we are NTV News. Good to have you back. The holiday season is officially underway. In New York City, thousands gathered to watch Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. But there was an unscheduled performance of sorts. Pro-Palestinian protesters broke through barriers and glued themselves to the street. And today's Daniel Monahan has more. Protesters sat down in the middle of 6th Avenue as balloons and floats began moving south from Central Park. The demonstrators glued themselves to the road, wearing white jumpsuits with the words colonialism, capitalism, and ethnic cleansing written on the front and back. Another member of the group poured fake blood over them as they shouted and chanted, liberation for Palestine and planet, prompting those attending the parade to drown out their chants with boos. Other protesters stood in the crowd. Cries of free Palestine rang out as protesters displayed Palestinian flags. Some demonstrators called for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war while chanting, there is only one solution, Intifada revolution. Intifada means an armed uprising of Palestinians against Israel in the West Bank and Gaza. As the protesters sat on the parade route, Ronald McDonald seemed to wait patiently behind them. The clown character mascot of McDonald's often used as a symbol of capitalism, an economic system the protesters take issue with. The demonstrators were members of the Seven Circles Alliance, a group whose website says it aims to force political and economic system change through a decolonial lens and unite unions, climate scientists, and socialist organizations to struggle against capitalism. Police say several people were taken into custody and that the parade continued without disruption. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. But the protest didn't stop the fun, and the iconic floats quickly continued down 6th Avenue. And today's Jason Perry was on the ground and got a first-hand look at the action, speaking with many joyful people in the crowds. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. I'm here in New York City at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Thousands of people from all around the world have gathered here to see these spectacular floats and the people. I'm going to talk to some of them to see what their favorite floats are and to see what plans they have for Thanksgiving. Do you have any favorite floats today? I really like that one right there. Which one is it? The, the Christmas tree. Okay, and what about you? I really like the Minions and the SpongeBob. All right, and what's your favorite? I like the Christmas choir and Santa. Okay, and do you have a favorite? Uh, the, that one, the tree one. Okay, okay. And so what will you be doing for Thanksgiving? We're gonna have a wonderful dinner at Tavern on the Green. Oh, my name is Bobby Rennie. Hey, where did you come from? That's a long way. Is this your family here? Yeah, she lives here with my sister. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Do y'all have a favorite float or anything you're waiting on? Um, I liked the Pikachu and Eevee one. Okay, and what about you? I'm waiting for Cher. Okay, okay. Yeah, That'd be good to see her too. We are excited to see Cher. And how are you? Good, thank you. How and where are you? Did, good. Where did you come from? Canada. Canada, that's a long, kind of a long way. And um, is this your son here? Yes, it is. Are you enjoying the parade? <laughs> yes. Do you have a favorite float? Sesame Street. Sesame Street and Paw Patrol. 
Sesame Street and Paw Patrol. Many of them like Paw Patrol. Um, do you have a favorite float? Uh, Santa Claus. Santa Claus. Santa Claus. And what about you? Do you have a favorite? Oh, Santa Claus. Santa Claus. Jesse James Decker. Okay, okay, <laughs> Eric okay. Decker. And what, what's your favorite float? Louie. Oh, yeah. Bluey. Bluey? And yours? Bluey! Nice. Thank you. Thank you. Do you have any plans for Thanksgiving? D uh, dinner. Dinner. <laughs> with family? Restaurant. Okay. With our, we're from, we're friends. Arizona. Okay. North Carolina. Nice. Y'all came a long way. Yeah. Well, thank you all. Appreciate it. Bye. All right. Well, that's a wrap from Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. I'm Jason Perry in New York City, and from all of us at NTD, have a happy Thanksgiving. I love how you could end with Santa. I mean, that looked like a ton of fun, and I love how he captured it. He was really able to capture it. Yes, Jason did a great job mm. with that one. And Tennessee, international tourists from Canada, that's really oh, great yeah. stuff. But the furthest distance is from the North Pole, Santa. Oh, yeah, you're right. There you go. All right, uh, just stay with us. We're heading to a quick break, and we'll be right back. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning and welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories. 13 women and children hostages slated for release today. We look at the logistics. As the temporary pause begins, attacks from Hezbollah continue on Israel's northern front and rockets and tunnels are discovered in a Gaza refugee camp. Who is Argentinian President-elect Javier Millet? We break down details of the newly elected president with the editor-in-chief of the Portuguese Epoch Times. A fashion face-off. China-funded fashion giant Xi'an is reportedly on track to beat out H&M and Zara this year. What comes to mind when people think about Thanksgiving? Spectators from Philadelphia's Thanksgiving Day Parade share their thoughts. And over in the heart of the nation's capital, thousands trot to fight hunger, working off some calories to make room for their Thanksgiving feast. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome also from me. Today is Friday, November 24th, and our top news today, the war in Gaza and the hostage deal between Israel and Hamas. 
13 Israeli women and children will be released at 4 p.m. local time. That's if the temporary ceasefire started at 7 a.m. this morning holds. So far, there's been no reported bombings, artillery strikes, or rocket attacks. Qatari mediators say the hostages will first be sent to Egypt, then back to Israel to reunite with their families. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the logistics. Smoke lingered over northern Gaza Friday morning as Israeli tanks and armored vehicles drove away in a column and the brief truce with Hamas began. It's the first pause in fighting in the 48-day-old war, meant to get aid to civilians in Gaza and facilitate the release of 240-some hostages being held by Hamas after being kidnapped in the October 7th terrorist attacks. At least 50 women and children hostages will be freed during the four-day pause. That's in exchange for at least 150 Palestinian prisoners, fuel and aid trucks into Gaza, and a halt to aerial surveillance for six hours a day. The deal includes the option to extend the pause by one day for every additional 10 hostages released. A spokesperson from Qatar's foreign ministry says women and children hostages from the same families will be grouped together. Israel says it has now received the first list of hostages to be set free and is in contact with all families. The first Israeli faces that they will see will be the faces of IDF personnel who will let them know, hopefully, that they are safe and in safe hands and will facilitate almost immediate contact with family. IDF spokesperson Daniel Hagari said the following days will be complicated and cautioned nothing was final until it actually happens. One Israeli official told CNN 39 Palestinian prisoners will be released in the first group. He said they will be sent back to their hometowns and villages in the West Bank, but only after the hostages in Gaza are back in Israeli hands. A Palestinian official says the group is made up of 24 women and 15 teenage males. Egypt has said 34,000 gallons of diesel, four trucks of gas, and 200 trucks of aid will be delivered daily into Gaza when the pause starts. Israel's military says its troops would stay behind a ceasefire line inside Gaza, but didn't state the location. Hamas confirmed through its channels that it would cease all hostilities over the four days and called for an escalation on all fronts once it ends. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Fighting intensified yesterday ahead of the truce in battles around Jabalia refugee camp north of Gaza City. Israel says its fighter jets hit more than 300 targets and took out a senior Hamas naval commander in the hours leading up to the pause. The terrorist group Hezbollah launched a series of attacks on Israel yesterday. Israel says it repeatedly warned the state that it's in a very dangerous situation due to Hezbollah's attacks on civilians. Here's IDF spokesperson Jonathan Conricus. And we will continue to defend against Hezbollah aggression. And let's hope that for once they do what's right for the civilians in Lebanon and think about the future of Lebanon instead of escalating the situation while jeopardizing everything that is left in Lebanon. Israel stated its posture along Lebanon's border is defensive and that it's been hitting back at Hezbollah military infrastructure. The IDF says its fighter jets struck rocket launch pads yesterday, recently used to target Israel, along with other sites used for military operations. Israel's military released videos yesterday of weapons, tunnel shafts, and missiles. It says were found in Gaza's Jabalia area. The footage shows a tunnel shaft in a mosque and various missiles in this urban area. Here, next to residential houses, we found all these missiles, long and medium-range missiles which are aimed from the civilian area towards the state of Israel. We entered the area and found missiles next to the mosque, very, very large missiles. 
This made it clear that terrorist activity was taking place inside the mosques and inside the urban area. The IDF says launchers were found buried in surrounding orchards and that it found weapons in nearby schools and residences. Israel says its airstrikes yesterday in the north of Gaza hit terrorist command centers, tunnels, weapons, manufacturing sites and anti-tank missile launch posts. Yeah, and as we mentioned, those are war crimes when you actually use civilian infrastructure to mm. store your weapons or to stage military operations. That's right. And as they move in, there is more and more video footage, more uh, pictures coming out of there that actually prove that this is going on. Yeah, and the victims of that in part are the civilians, the people that live in Gaza who mm. live near those military sites. Right. So also, of course, a lot of... Um, there is, let's move to some more um, softer and heartwarming stories because the holidays can be a lonely time of year. A volunteer organization is helping Israel defense soldiers from abroad have a family to celebrate with. Take a look. Okay, okay so, we have, so we have mashed potatoes, green beans. For many Israeli Americans gathering to give thanks, this holiday is a sad one. There are empty seats at some Thanksgiving tables those killed by Hamas on October 7th, and the more than 200 people still being held hostage in Gaza. This day is especially tough for what the Israelis call lone soldiers, men and women like Tali Rochberg, who are from abroad and serve in the Israel Defense Forces here without their families. We act as a little family for them. Tali volunteers at the Lone Soldier Center, one organization helping bring people together during this very difficult time. She and fellow volunteer Anat Ben-Dror's families are not among those killed or captured, but they're working to support others in a country reeling from the October 7th Hamas attack. Usually we're doing very big events on Thanksgiving to the lone soldiers, but in this time we thought what's the right way to celebrate in these not happy times here in Israel. We decided to celebrate it for the ones who can come, to thank them for what they are doing, and to say thanks that we are alive, and to try and get some strength from one another. Um, so it is, it's like a um, bittersweet Thanksgiving, I have to say. Hanging over this dinner table and the country, is the absence of those who are being held hostage. The feeling that while we're all together, we're not fully whole. There's still uh, a part of our country, of our people that are not with us tonight. We want everyone back home, able to be with their families. We want kids back home with their parents. But also at the table, gratitude for the glimmer of hope as families wait for the release of the hostages. I think part of this uh, dinner today will be to think about the one we lost, to pray that we will get back soon, the ones that are still in life and in Gaza. Coming up, we sit down with the editor-in-chief of the Portuguese Epoch Times to get the details of the newly elected president of Argentina, Javier Millet. America's oldest Thanksgiving Day parade in Philadelphia drew a huge crowd. What do people have to say about the meaning of Thanksgiving? And to build the appetite for their Thanksgiving feasts, thousands laced up their running shoes to make the trot for hunger. That and more after this short break.
Welcome back. Now we have the question of who is Argentina's president-elect Javier Millet? We'll learn some key points from Marco Chacas, the editor-in-chief of the Portuguese edition of the Epic Times. That's right. Good morning, Marcos, and thank you so much for joining us this early. So um, to start, we had a lot of people had their eyes on, on this election. So can you start by quickly going over why this election was meaningful? So this election is very meaningful, not only for Argentines and for Argentina, but also for the whole of Latin America and even more broadly, um, I think, the world. Now, Argentina has a very deep running leftist tradition, I mean, for the last few decades. Uh, they have basically been dominated by what, what they call the Peronists, which is like the leftist establishment um, that descends from Juan Domingo Perón, former Argentine president. Now, this is meaningful because Argentina is having runaway inflation. It has problems with a very swollen state, um, also reports of corruption. And when this guy comes along, it really shakes up the establishment because just to get the gist of what kind of guy he is, he's been dubbed the Argentine Trump. Um, which has been common with right-wing leaders all over the world. So he's an anti-establishment leader and he's taken back a country that's been dominated by decades uh, of leftist rule. Uh, that's meaningful in this way, but it also shakes up globally because he's going to get the opportunity to uh, bring more U.S. influence, in a sense, to a very China-dominated region um, right now. And it also impacts the, a continent which has seen what they call a pink tide or even a red tide with so socialist leaders taking over. It's a very resource-rich region and that makes it very important also for world powers like China and the U.S. Yeah, you bring up a lot of really great points there. And you mentioned former President Trump. He's taken a likening to Malay, and he's also said that he plans to visit him. And Trump even coined that new phrase, the new MAGA, make Argentina great again, right? So what does Malay's win mean for the U.S.? I mean, um, it can mean a lot. It already means a lot, but it can mean even more depending on how Malay deals with it once he takes, he takes office. So um, Argentina has essentially replaced Brazil as China's sweetheart in Latin America. Um, just talking geopolitics, it's a, ver it's a very um, mineral resource rich country. So Biden's talking about going electric all the time, right? Argentina has a lot of the key components that the US might need to get the batteries going for that. And it's a country that's been dominated by China's influence. So when you talk energy, for instance, um, it means a lot regarding the energetic future uh, of China-US relations, relations, for instance. So that's one aspect of it. Another one is that um, in his plans to combat inflation and try to fix up the Argentine economy, Malay is considering dollarizing the economy. That means essentially replacing the local currency with US dollars, which would then be even more meaningful uh, for the US um, sharing its currency with a major South American nation. I think that's very interesting also when you talk about China, So, but that's a different point and I want to touch on it later. For now, let's stay domestically. What, like you said, it was a very deep running, it has a deep running leftist tradition. Um, the Peronist ideology has been running very deep. And now he is coming in calling himself an anarcho-capitalist. And at the same time, he doesn't have the majority in parliament. So how much power, let's say, or challenges does he actually have in reshaping all these policies that he claims he wants to? So it's going to be very, very challenging. Um, we've seen that with other non-leftist administrations in recent years in Latin America. So for instance, in my native Brazil, uh, Bolsonaro went in in 2018 with a lot of expectation that he would reshape the country's politics in a number of ways, maybe limit the Supreme Court's power uh, and other measures. He has not been able to do much of that, especially because of opposition in Congress, which Malay is very likely to face. As I said, it's a deep running 
leftist tradition in the country. So we'll see um, what he gets to do, but what I do expect is that he's able to do some groundwork. I was even talking to Ted uh, for a recent article I wrote for the Epoch Times here in the US with uh, a political analyst called Roderick Navarro from the Pen and Post. And he was telling me that the challenge now uh, is having good governance and being able to lay the groundwork for trying re-election or sort of changing the political um, background in the country so that they can elect more right-wing candidates and go more into free market reforms in the next few years. I mean, it's a broader subject, but in a nutshell, that's the core challenge. Yeah, and thanks for unpacking all this for us. In, in Argentina's core trading partners are in order Brazil, China, and the, the United States. Now, Brazil's President Lula da Silva reportedly has some political differences with Malay, but yet he still wants to maintain ties. Do you see that happening? I mean, they'll have to work on it because it's a very dynamic relationship with Brazil and Argentina. Uh, Brazil is the historical trade partner of Argentina. They have very complementary relationships uh, in economy, if we're talking energy and food, for instance. Um, so the countries are very mutually dependent on a series of areas, they'll have to work together. Um, but just so we get the gist of how tense the relationships um, are right now with Malay and other presidents in Latin America itself, um, reports in Brazil were saying that Lula's administration uh, would see a Malay win in the past few weeks as apocalyptic as a, or as a hackathon, which is like just a catastrophe to use simple words. Um, and it's it's kind of mild to say that he just uh, made some blunt statements. He was calling those guys trash and quote unquote human excrement. So that uh, made relationships a lot more tense, yeah. Well, let's see how that plays out. But thank you very much. I think those were very good insights and analysis. Marcos Schottkes, the editor-in-chief of the Portuguese Epoch Times. Thank you so much for having me. And we go back into the U.S. Several lawmakers from the GOP and Democratic parties will not be running for re-election in 2024. More than two dozen have announced that this will be their last term. Most of them will be retiring, while a few are vying for other posts beside the House and Senate. Entities Costa-Menez tells us more. In total, 26 lawmakers have announced that this will be their last term. 19 are members of the House of Representatives while the remaining seven are senators. Republican Congressman Bill Johnson from Ohio will not seek an eighth term in Congress and has accepted an offer to lead Youngstown State University. Michigan Democrat Dan Kildee will not seek re-election once his term ends in January 2025. Kildee made his decision based on health reasons and to spend more time with family. Republican Congresswoman Debbie Lesko of Arizona announced she'll be stepping down next year, also to focus on family matters. She added in a post on X that right now Washington, D.C. is broken and it is hard to get anything done. New York Republican George Santos announced he has no intention of seeking re-election. That follows a damning House Ethics Committee report that accused him of stealing money from his campaign's donor contributions. While Colorado Republican Congressman Ken Buck announced his retirement next year, after he criticized GOP members who denied the 2020 election results. In the Senate, seven Democrats and two Republicans won't be running in 2024. Democratic Senator LaFonza Butler took over the role to replace the late Senator Dianne Feinstein in California last month. In an interview with the New York Times, she announced that she will not be running next year. Democrat Joe Manchin announced earlier this month that he will not be vying for re-election. 
He said he will travel the country to see if there is an interest in a movement to mobilize the middle and bring Americans together. And Utah Republican Mitt Romney told the Washington Post that he would not seek a new term in the Senate, adding that it was now time for a new generation to step up. Cross NTD News. It's the season of holiday shopping. As major fashion retailers begin to snap up discounts for buyers, a China-funded company is quietly expanding. Fast fashion giant Shein is getting closer to besting two of its biggest rivals this year, Zara and H&M. In the first three quarters of this year alone, Shein's revenue has already outpaced H&M's by a staggering $7 billion. Zara is next on the list. And the corporate ambition doesn't stop there. Shein is looking to become a new rival to Amazon. The online retailer has been luring in merchants from Amazon to its own platform with shopping incentives. What's more, the company is also reportedly planning to go public as early as 2024. But to get there, it has to bypass a string of hurdles from U.S. regulators. Shein has been facing pressure from lawmakers over allegations of unethical labor practices against the Uyghur minorities in the Xinjiang region. Going to Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, it's host to the oldest Thanksgiving Day parade in the U.S. This year marked the parade's 104th anniversary. Spectators shared their thoughts on the meaning of Thanksgiving. Let's take a look. The first Philadelphia Thanksgiving parade was held in 1920. The now-defunct Gimble Brothers department store created the parade to be especially kid-friendly. Uh, I've seen all the Disney characters, all the movie characters. There's uh, great uh, bands coming by. Uh, it's great for kids. It's very festive. Jim Kenny says Christmas and other holidays are a bit more nostalgic and emotional. However, he says Thanksgiving is different. Thanksgiving is just a kind of neutral holiday where you just enjoy yourself, enjoy the family, enjoy food, good food, uh, and just be thankful for what you have. Warren Kalbach is thankful for his family and his health. So I'm very thankful to still have my mother and father. They're both 86 years old, and I have 12 brothers and sisters, and I have 30 nieces and nephews. Kyle Thompson is sharing the experience with his children and reliving his own childhood in the process. Um, you know, growing up in this city and, and growing up coming to this parade, uh, for me it's being able to share with my family now. Like I've, you know, I'm 35 now, I have two kids, but my daughter's four years old and I've been coming here since I was four, so it's, I think that meeting of being able to sort of, I guess, relive my childhood through my children is kind of neat, so it's cool to be able to share that experience with them. Some people use this holiday as an opportunity to help others and spread hope to the community. And so we're just trying to give back to the community and tell people that there's there's greater hope than the things that are going on around here. Um, it's a, a time that our country had a little more freedom and it's a time that we get to come together as families, right? That's the most important thing here on earth is our families and the chance that we have to be together during a holiday season is, is really significant and important to me. Gotcha. The Thanksgiving holiday and this parade give people an opportunity to come together, reflect on things they are grateful for, and just have some good old-fashioned fun. And more festivities over in the nation's capital. More than 7,000 people from across the U.S. gathered in the heart of Washington, D.C. 
to participate in the 22nd annual Turkey Trot. In true holiday spirit, they're racing to give back. Entity's Melina Wisecup was there. Kicking off the fun bright and early, warming up those limbs on a frigid fall morning. Give me 10. Probably the start is my favorite part, not the end. Then it's off to the track for folks young and old, and those with two legs or four. Thousands of folks here are in downtown Washington, D.C., joining the annual Turkey Trot. We've met folks from all over the United States who come here just to keep this annual tradition alive. You see behind me, there are some of the first groups of finishers who are really working hard for that Thanksgiving turkey. We're from California, and we've been doing this, I think this is our sixth year? Sixth year. But we're here visiting our grandkids who ran. This is just fun. Celebrate Thanksgiving. It's important to celebrate Thanksgiving and, and everything that happens. And we come and visit some friends here in D.C. every year. So we try to take it up a notch. A sea of turkey trotters getting their steps in while giving back to the community. Fighting poverty and homelessness, the race is sponsored by an organization called So Others Might Eat. It raises money for food, affordable housing, job training, and other programs to help people in need. The charity that they raise money for is really um, meaningful and important to give back on Thanksgiving. And for other racers, the giving doesn't stop here. Some going the extra mile to dress up as a way to bring joy to others through their festive clothes. I know as like a little kid, I enjoyed seeing it. So it's sort of like to give back to like the next generation. Yeah. Since. Are you nervous about having to run in that? A little bit, a little bit. Um, I don't know if it's quite possible, but we're going to see. And it might just be worth it that feeling of accomplishment that everyone experiences at the finish line, just in time and with plenty of room in the belly now to enjoy a traditional Thanksgiving feast with friends and family. Melina Weiscup, NTD News. Again, another one where it just seems like the mood is so light. It's yeah. awesome. And also great that, you know, that before you sit down to have a feast, you do something, you run and uh, give others the opportunity that otherwise may not to, ha to have a feast as well. Yeah, and it really makes that homemade apple pie taste that much sweeter. Yeah, right. And did you see that guy who had a turkey on his head and was also riding one? That was pretty good. Interesting. Yeah, the turkey <laughs> hat. Yeah, really turkey. nice attire. It was, it was blocked a little bit, but I think he had a blow up turkey or something and it looked like he was riding on it. That Creative. <laughs> yeah. And what better way to express gratitude than giving back to the community? Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, on that note, we are wrapping up our show, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. So stay tuned for our news broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.